So, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, Judge not that you be not judged. Uh, the first two words are generally the most focused end on. Uh, and generally in context or in conversations, it's you're having a conversation with someone and or some person is having a conversation with some person and they think this person's doing something wrong. And so they might communicate it to them. Hey, what you're doing seems to be wrong. And the person says back to them, judge not. Who are you to judge me? You shouldn't be looking at my life. You just take care of your own self. I'll take care of mine. Don't you know what it says in the Bible? And, you know, that's understandable. Very few people like for uh, others to look in, in in their life and maybe point out things where they could, they could grow and they can improve. Uh, but is that the full meaning of what's going on here in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain, I think, what's, what's happening, and then we can see what the clear meaning of, of the text is. Now, first, we should realize that we are... We are diving into Matthew chapter 7, right? So what we've done is found ourselves kind of jumping into the last third of a sermon. So Matthew chapter 5 verses, uh, chapter five through chapter 7 is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. So really what's going on is um, we're, we're jumping in pretty, we're jumping in pretty towards the end. So the chapter 5 verses, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7 is the best sermon that's ever been preached. This is where Jesus stands up on a mountain and preaches a sermon. And so it starts with, in chapter 5, the Beatitudes, starts with the gospel. It starts with the fact how much of a wretched sinner we are, how much we need Christ, how much if we cry out to him, we can be forgiven our sin, that he, he, he declares us to be completely pure in heart now for those that repent of their sin, and then talks about what it looks like to be saved and understand, and we explain the gospel. I'm coming back to the Beatitudes, I promise. Um, but it, the, the entirety of the sermon is predicated or found, found its foundation in the gospel. And then after that, uh, the rest of chapter 5, verse 14 or 13, after the Beatitudes, through the rest of it, he's explaining to us what kingdom life looks like. So as we look at the rest of the chapters, six, five, the rest of 5, all of 6, all of 7, and we look at what kingdom life looks like, and we see this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, really a lot of commands and, and calls for obedience, we need to realize that being a king, kingdom life person always finds its foundation in the gospel. If you try to obey what it like, looks like to live in the kingdom without actually being a part of the kingdom, without being a child of God, then it's, it's just going to become frustrating. So realize that as we're jumping in in verse 7, we're realizing about things you should do and reading about things you should and shouldn't do. It's all found, finding its foundations <clears throat> in the gospel. So this sermon and this text is speaking to believers who have trusted Christ, who have been declared righteous by God. And now as believers, they're trying to figure out what it looks like to live in kingdom life. And so, uh, and if we, even if we jump into chapter 7, um, through 11, there's really uh, a turning point at 7-1. Jesus has done a lot of teaching on the kingdom and how it relates to the law and how it relates to hypocrisy and how it relates to money, how it relates to anxiety. And he's turning the corner in his, in his sermon that he's given at, seven, at chapter 7, verse 1, and he's going to start a concluding. And, so, and the conclusion amps up in its, in its intensity. But 7 through 11 is that, that turning point to where he gives some kind of at last advisory cautions. And that's what we're looking at today until he goes into uh, the 
transition statement of the golden rule and then ends it with the conclusion. And the conclusion, of course, is quite intense. So what we're looking at is that turning corner with kind of last three advisory cautions to people who are living in kingdom life. And so you could think these these things that we're looking at are totally unrelated, but they are related uh, to each other. Uh, They're helping us understand verses 1 through 12 If we're kind of taking a big picture, understanding these three cautions, it's telling us how to relate to God the Father and how to relate to each other and what that looks like. Um, So anyway, not in that order, but nevertheless, that's what we're looking at. So um, what we see here then in verse 7, starting in, I keep saying verse, chapter 7, I'm sorry, like I was calling next Sunday yesterday and and, and tomorrow in in previous service, so my mind is crazy right now for some reason. Anyway, chapter 7, verse 1, what we see here, uh, in our postmodern environment, the, the judge not, uh, one commentator says, when you see the judge not, in our postmodern environment, uh, basically uh, the only evil today in our culture is acknowledging that someone else is mistaken. And so that, that's not, I don't think, the, the context and meaning here. Is, it's not helping us see that we can, we can never look at other people and determine, or necessarily in our mind, make a determination that what they've done wrong. So we see judge not. It's not saying that you can't think in your head this particular believer has done something wrong, but I can never say anything because it tells me judge not. I don't think that it's saying that. Instead, the greater meaning of verses 1 through 5 um, is more not necessarily about judging, but about hypocrisy. One commentator says it this way. If the de- devil, I said, did that first, sir, devil. Uh, if the devil, maybe too much Adam Sandler back in college. Um, if the devil is not able to destroy, a, you shouldn't watch it, by the way. It's not the most edifying. Anyway, if the devil is not able to destroy a Christian witness by making him apathetic, he would certainly do it by trying to make him a fanatic. And this fanatic means in the negative sense, not in the positive sense, but in the negative sense, making him seem like he's crazy. So verses one through six uh, is not so much about understanding uh, that you should never judge. It's more about the fanatic hypocrite, the person who's doing the judging and how they're doing it. So uh, as the SV study Bible says on verses, really all of this, uh, Jesus moves from personal temptations as he's been dealing with thus far in the Sermon on the Mount to interpersonal temptations. Not just I struggle with this sin, but instead I struggle with sinning against people in this particular way, interpersonal temptations. And he's warning people against inappropriate judging and then commends appropriate evaluation. So he's not saying you can never judge ever, even though the first two words say judge not. You'll see that there's There's meaning behind that and he gives explanation. He's not saying never judge, but he's commending appropriate evaluation and then he looks at God's guidance as the source of the believer's stability and relationships. So he helps us understand how this looks. Now, the first thing that we can see in verses one through six is this. So the, the first kind of last advisory caution, you can put up number one, is this. The gospel of the kingdom does not produce people that are judgmental hypocrites. The gospel of the kingdom does not produce people who are judgmental hypocrites. That's, that's, as a believer, for those that have trusted in Christ, the way in which we live as a kingdom liver, the way that we conduct ourselves, we should not conduct ourselves, live our lives as followers of Jesus, as judgmental hypocrites. And you're thinking, okay, um, but I do that. So am I not a member of the kingdom of, of heaven? That's not what I'm saying. It's saying this is what it shouldn't be like. So in the kingdom... In, in, the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he explains the gospel. He explains how God gives us a pure heart. And then as we live, he helps us understand what it should look like. But we don't ever live out perfectly the ideal. 
But nevertheless, that's what we strive for. So here we're seeing the ideal, even though you don't strive to, or even though you don't perfectly live that out. Uh, but nevertheless, here we see the gospel of the kingdom does, does not produce people that are judgmental hypocrites. So, so notice that I didn't say the gospel of the kingdom. I didn't say this. The gospel of the ki- kingdom produces people that never judge. I, I don't think that's the point of this text. Verses one through five. I think that it's actually more about you not being a judgmental hypocrite. So why do I say that? Let's look at it. So we're going to zoom in now in verses one through five. And verses one through five kind of has four different parts. And we can get the fullness of the understanding. The first one is the command, verse one. The first part of verses one through five is the command, judge not that you be not judged. Um, So it's telling us that you shouldn't judge in a certain way, as D.A. Carson says, uh, it does not forbid all judging of any kind, for the moral distinctions drawn in the Sermon on the Mount require that decisive judgments be made. Uh, in order, basically what he's saying is, if you're going to look at someone and think, ah, I don't know if they're doing something right, you're making a judgment in your head. So he's not saying you can't do that. And we'll get into more about that, what that looks like. He says, it does not say that Christians are to be an amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never understand any circumstance whatsoever or hold opinions about right and wrong. So we are to, in some ways, understand what this means, but it doesn't mean that you can never, ever look at someone and think that what they might be doing. Instead, this word judges don't adopt critical, condemning attitudes towards people. It doesn't mean don't determine ever that what they might not be doing is right. So here, let's get an understanding. You have the command in verse one, and then you have the argument why, verse two. Uh, once we get it in its full context, one through five, you'll, you'll see what, what I'm saying. Verse two, four. So anytime you see a four, usually he's explaining why. He's, he's conducting an argument now. Four, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So he's not saying don't do it. He's saying, but the degree in which you do it, notice that that's the way it's going to be given to you. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So there's a way to do it in a way that's not um, pushy, mean, etc. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And so he tells us that in verses one and two. So we have the command in one. We have the argument in two. And then in verse three and four, he gives us kind of the extreme example. So he's, he's helping us hone in on that whenever you see something going on, the primary thing that you should be doing is thinking about yourself first. So he uses this extreme example in verses 3 and 4, hyperbole, uh, where he says this. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So he's saying, don't judge. And basically what Jesus is saying, when you see that other thing in that other person's life and you're judging it, it could be that it's a speck and that in your own life you have something much greater. Now, remember in context here, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching and there are Pharisees there. And so they had become quite judgmental hypocrites. And so in context, we see as he's talking to them, uh, just how relatable it is to them. So verse three, why do you, uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. So here he, he uses this, uh, this massive kind of extreme example. Uh, D.A. Carson says that this, way, this, this situation depicted by this brief scenario occurs so frequently and so pathetically in professing Christian circles that the contrast between a speck of sawdust and a plank of log is not at all exaggerated. In other words, he's saying this extreme example that Christ is using 
actually happens a lot. There's a lot of Christians that have this big, huge thing in their life, but generally they're nitpicking on their people around them rather than uh, looking at their own life. So just to kind of get a good mental picture of it, I thought it would be helpful then uh, to think of it this way. So here we go. So you have this huge, huge sin in your life, right? Here you are, you have this huge plank and you're looking at your friend and you're like, hey man, I don't know if you realize it, but you've got this thing in your eye. I mean, how can you even walk around like that? Dude, you, re- you really need to take care of that. How, how are you going to do ministry? Like, how are you going to walk around for Jesus with this thing in your eye? Are you kidding me? You, n- you need to get that taken care of. Get that out of your eye first. I mean, seriously, how, what is even wrong with you? I don't even understand how you can relate like that. Obviously, you see the, the ridiculousness of that. Like, if someone has this tiny little thing in your eye and you've got this massive two-by-four hanging out of your eye... What he's saying is, look at your own life first and the things that are happening in your own life before you go to other people and look at theirs. He's not saying you can't look at other people. As you can see in verse 5, watch what he says. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. In other words, you hypocrite, do your own self-examination, check your own heart, realize the sin that is in your life. You've been forgiven of it, but nevertheless... All of Christian life is of ongoing repentance. Discover that, realize that, come to the Lord, repent of that sin, praise Jesus Jesus that he forgives you, and then watch what he says in verse 5. And he doesn't say, then you're done. Watch what he says. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So never ever is he saying that you can't go to someone. Because he even says at the very end, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's possible... And it's certainly right for us to look at other people's lives and think there's something going on in their life. Gosh, I want them to know because I love them. I'm going to go to them and they shouldn't say to me, judge not. Instead, I've done the hard work of removing this huge two by four from my own, own life and of repentance. And there, surely there'll be other things. But nevertheless, you've, you, can, you looked at your own life, you considered your own life. And then after that, you go to them and remove what it says, the speck out of your brother's eye. So here we see uh, that we need to be careful of becoming like the hypocrite that uh, goes to the other person and says, you poor Christian, as this commentator says, you have a speck of soot in your eye, but he doesn't see the thing that everyone else can see, which is so obvious that he has a steel girder protruding from his own face. Um, We don't want to be like that. This is bad for Christians to be that self-unaware. So... uh, Another commentator says, what's wrong with this man? He's looking for sins in other people and he pounces on them whenever he sees one. He's so absorbed in his own campaign that he's blind to the fact that he has sin in his own life that is usually far greater than anything he sees in the other lives of people. He is guilty of the sin of censoriousness, which is like being severely critical, being severely fault-finding, fussing and having petty criticisms to other people when you're absolutely oblivious to your own thing. So this is what... He's, he's saying, so this judging is judging of the minor faults of other people without realizing your major faults. That's what he doesn't want. That's what he's, he's cautioning us here. So then you can ask, okay, well then, let's say that I have taken the two by four out of my own eye. I have become fully aware that if I'm going to go to someone to tell them about the speck, I need to realize these huge sins in my life. I repent of them, I confess them, I I praise Jesus that he's forgiven me of them. And then how do I do that? How do I go to them and talk to them? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, I think a really good way to think about this. 
a really good way. In Galatians chapter 6, it says this. This is the wise way to go to someone. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, (coughs) you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be to be tempted. So what we see here is this. You have someone who's caught in, in transgression. You have someone who's caught in sin. And when they're caught in sin, it says, you who are spiritual. So it's, it's clearly saying, you who are spiritual, you who are mature in the faith, you who have actually realized that you have sin in your own life and that you should have an ongoing place of repentance in your own heart. And you're doing that. You who are spiritual should be the one that goes and, uh, to your brother. And when you go to your brother, you don't go to them in a dogmatic look what I see, you need to get it together, kick you in the pants kind of way, right? Instead, it's you should restore him, look at this, with a spirit of gentleness. So going to your brother, going to your sister who's caught in sin, as it says, caught in a transgression, the mature should do it, and as they do it, they're brokenhearted. They love this person. They want desperately for this person to see what they see, And they need to do it in a spirit of gentleness. And not only that, they're also so self-aware that when they go to them, it says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. They realize that when they go to this, they're not going as some person above them like, hey, hey, you got this and I don't fix it. They're realizing I'm just like you and I I could fall. As I come to you and tell you this, I could fall into it with you. You're quite self-aware that you and I, sorry, are no different than anybody else and that we could, we could fall into the same sin as them. We're not better than anybody. We're all children of God. And so the way that we go to them then is uh, with a spirit of gentleness and with humility realizing that we also could, could uh, fall into temptation. Sinclair Ferguson says, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. In other words, whenever we realize just how much of a sinner we are and we've tasted the forgiveness that when we go to others, we use love and restraint and kindness and gentleness whenever we go to them and tell them. So the point here in verses one through five is not so much judging as much as it is hypocrisy in judging. Hypocrisy in judging. We don't overlook other people's sins, but when we go to them, here's the key. We don't go to them to tear them down. We go to them to build them up. We don't go to them to make them feel bad. That's sinful and um, hypocritical. We go to them to build them up. That's Christ-exalting and gospel-centered. We go to them to love them, care for them, walk beside them, and point them to Jesus, not just make them feel bad about the sin they're caught in. One is sinful. One is hypocritical. The other is Christ-exalting and gospel-centered. So this text is, keeping, is pointing us to not be hypocrites, but rather grace-extenders, um, building up people in, in the gospel. That's why it's all found, founding its foundation in the Beatitudes of the gospel. Living out the kingdom life um, is difficult, but we need to be... Uh, gospel-centered when we do it. So when we go here and we see the gospel doesn't produce people who are judgmental hypocrites. Instead, it, it creates people who go to people who are found in sin, talk to them gently and loving in order to build them up. So <clears throat> this means this. The Bible doesn't keep us from holding our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. 
In order for us to obey Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, or even Matthew 18, 15, if someone's caught in sin, you go tell them, and if they repent, then, then that you've restored your brother or sister. And even if they don't, verse 16, you bring two or more witnesses, and you say, hey, this is what we see, and if they repent, then they're restored. I mean, when you see that, uh, the Bible doesn't say we can't hold our brothers and sisters accountable. In order to obey Galatians 6, 1, go restore them gently, you have to have made some kind of judgment in your head that what they were doing is not something that Christians should do. So whenever you see somebody doing something wrong and you think, I don't think that's right, right then you just judged. And you can't go tell them unless you've thought in your head what they did isn't right. So it's not telling us you can't do that. Matthew 7 says you can't judge and make a decision that what they're doing. Uh, Verse 2 and verse 5 tells us that we eventually have to go to them and take the speck out. But it does, it doesn't preclude us from judging, but it does give us, um, in the context of all, what we're to do. What we're to do is self-examine, confess the sin in our own life, and then restore them gently. That's the spirit of this when we see it doesn't produce judgmental hypocrites. We realize that we're no different than them. Now, this judging done in the Galatians 6-1 type way, restoration, um, it is to be done, and I think this is important, Christian to Christian. I think that's all the Bible is saying here. This is Sermon on the Mount written to Christians. Helping Christians to know what it's like to be living Christian life. And so obeying what's going on in verses 1 through 5 is to be done Christian to Christian. It's not to be done Christian to non-Christian. There's different texts for that that explain what that looks like. This is only Christian to Christian. Christians don't go to non-Christians and point out the sin, the the thing that they're doing at that particular time. Um, Instead, they do something different. So this is Christian to Christian. Judging is not to be done Christian to non-Christian. You could say to me, why would you say that? How can you say that? This is why I say that. There's a different place in the Bible that helps us understand what that looks like. First um, Corinthians 5, I think, is one of the best places to look at. First uh, Corinthians 5 in context, uh, in Paul's letter, he's writing to the Corinthians, pointing out lots of things that are wrong. One of the things in chapter 5 he he's kind of zooms in on is, hey, Corinthians, there's a guy that's sleeping with, his dad's wife, not his mom, but his dad's wife. Uh, and that's wrong. And you're just acting like it's no big deal. How could you allow this? Get that guy out of there. What, what, what are you thinking? And then as he's writing, that's in verse kind of verses one through eight. At verse nine in chapter five, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual moral people, not at all, meaning the sexual moral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since you would have to go out of the world because they're everywhere, right? They're us. They're everywhere. But now I'm writing to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother. If he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard, swindler, what I'm doing is I'm starting really early to give us the full context. So when we get to it, you can see why I'm saying what Christian to non-Christian looks like. Um, Not even to eat with such a one. Here it is. Verse 12 and 13 are the key ones. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge. So remember, Paul wrote this, but as Paul wrote 2 Peter 1.21, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. That means these are still Jesus' words. So when Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged in Matthew 7.1, he knew that Paul was going to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, is it not those in whom the church you are to judge? So when you read Matthew 5, 1, uh, 7, 1 through 5, take it in context. He's, Jesus doesn't contradict Jesus here saying, judge not, aren't you supposed to judge? He's not contradicting himself. You have to understand what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount that when you say judge not in context, it means there's a way that you do 
And here he's saying, and Paul's saying, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So Paul is still just reiterating what was happening in the Sermon on the Mount. There, you are to judge people in the church, but done in a certain way, where you self-examine first, and then you restore them gently, like Galatians 6.1. But he says this, God judges those outside. So Christian to non-Christian, God judges them, not you, because he's the ultimate judge. For non-believers, purge the evil person among you. So then what do you do then? The question is, well, what is Christian to non-Christian relationship look like? This is what it looks like. And it's really obvious. It's not go to them and point out that one sin they're doing. Like, how could you do this particular sin all the time, you non-Christian? Because that's not what they need. They don't need to have that one sin done for, right? Instead, they need all of their sin to be forgiven. They... You don't need to concentrate on one thing with them. They need a heart transformation. So you don't go to a non-Christian and point out a sin for them to stop. You just preach the gospel. Christian to non-Christian is you just tell them about Christ and what he's done. You tell them about who you are before Christ and what Christ has done for you and what he can do for them. Because they don't need to stop sinning in that one sin. They need to have their entire heart changed for their heart of stone to be made into a, a heart of flesh that loves Jesus and loves the gospel and loves to obey and has been forgiven of not individual sins, but they've been forgiven of all their sin. So what do you do for unbelievers? You go tell them the gospel. Christ Jesus died on the cross for you. If you will trust in him, repent of all your sin, he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will call you righteous. He will, he will declare you pure. And now you can be forgiven of all your sin and you can live um, as a kingdom dweller. So that's what you do uh, Christian to non-Christian. Christian to Christian, you talk about individual sins because they've been forgiven. They've been given the new heart, but they're still working out individual sins in their life. You, and it's fine for us to think about that. We should. We want to continually grow in our holiness. But with non-Christians, you don't need to deal with individual sins that they have. If there's a non-believer in your life that lies a lot, you don't need to tell. They shouldn't lie, right? You should say, hey, you shouldn't lie. But that's not the key thing that needs to change in their life that they just should stop lying. The key thing that needs to change in their life is they need a new heart. They need a new heart. So you tell them the gospel. Now, that's verses one through five. That's verses one through five where we see the gospel of the kingdom does not produce people that are judgmental hypocrites. Instead, compassionate people that repent of their own sin and go restore people gently. Now, when you get to verse six, now, uh, whenever I was preparing, I thought um, I could just stop there and we could just say, that's, that's verses 1 through 5. That's what is in context. But really, what I want to do here is help us get uh, the full version of what's going on in each kind of section. So I think that verses 1 through 11 is kind of a, a section where Jesus has given three cautions. And so I could have just given you the first one and stopped. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the other two that I think are kind of the big part of what's known as the pericope. Or if you type that in Word, it just says periscope because they don't have what It just means section of verses, right? So the big idea of 7 through 11 are three kind of cautionary things about kingdom living. So we saw verses 1. Now these next two aren't necessarily totally related to that first, but they are in the big umbrella of cautions of, um, uh, caution of kingdom living. So these next two are just free. And so we've officially just moved into free fun stuff now. So it's still obviously a sermon. So here we go. Uh, verse six. Now, verse six, when you read it, Calvin says that verse six is to be actually taken entirely separated and not connected to verses one through five whatsoever in regard to understanding the log plank spec thing. But nevertheless, it's still obviously related because 
It's the next thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount. So it gives us what would be our second caution, which is this. Now, let's read verse 6, and let's be totally confused together, and then let's try to make some discernment of what we think it means. All right, here it is. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample those pearls, them, underfoot, and turn to, at- to attack you. Okay, Jesus, what does that mean? <laughs> what? I don't, I'm not supposed to like dogs and pigs. So here's what I think it means. I'll go ahead and put up what I think it means and let's talk about what it means. Number two, the second kind of cautionary thing about kingdom living. The gospel of the kingdom does, not, or does produce discerning people who are indiscriminately, I'm sorry, let's read it again. The gospel of the kingdom does produce discerning people who are indiscriminately feeding dogs and pigs. I'm not sure if I wrote that right. Who are not indiscriminately feeding dogs and pigs. Um, what does that mean? And that doesn't mean actually like feeding them food. Let me just explain it to you um, so it's really understandable. But it basically means this. Dogs and pigs, these are brutal people, raging people. Uh, these, are, these are despisers of God. The, these particular two words are, are help in context with people of Israel. They understand those people are people that despise God. And so you don't give dogs what's holy. You don't give pigs pearls of great value. Uh, in other words, because when you do, they're just going to trample it. Uh, and so it means this. And I think this is rare. I think this is really rare. But basically what he's saying is, uh, as, a, as a person who believes that I should share the gospel with people, there are going to be people that are despisers of God, that no matter how many times you tell them the gospel, they have found themselves as vicious ongoing mockers of the gospel and they will always always reject it always and so he's saying that there are going to be times i think really rare in your life that there are people that no matter how many times you share the gospel they are such despisers of god they will never become converted and that if you spend all of your time on just the dogs and pigs you've really missed out on a lot of other people that could have heard that's that's the general gist of what i think verse six is trying to say so it's saying um, use discernment whenever you come across these people. If there are these people that you come across, really big, huge despisers of God that are vicious, ongoing, forever mockers of God, then when you give them the gospel, they don't care. They, you give them the pearl, they're just going to trample it like it's no big deal. Now, do I think that you'll, you'll come across this person in your life? I don't know. Likely not. Likely not. I, I would say it's really rare. I would say if you think there's a person that I've shared the gospel with so many times, they're a dog pig and I don't need to share the gospel with them anymore. I just need to move on. Before you make that decision, you should certainly talk to your community group and the elders and just let us all, let's make that decision together with you. Um, I think that just to, to come to the point where you say, I'm never going to share the gospel with this person anymore. That's a big decision, right? That's a huge decision. I don't know any other way to interpret this text, but nevertheless, um, cause Jesus doesn't forbid telling really, really bad sinners, the gospel. He tells us to do that in Matthew 28, Mark 16 and all over the new Testament. Um, so I would say really practically, if you know someone on the your life, it, like this in your life, don't jump away and say, well, Hey, you're a dog pig. I have to share the gospel with you. It's too, it's no fun. Likely you probably still should. And therefore you should talk to people in your community group, get other people around you and 
let them begin praying for them with you for a while before you just say no. I know it's a tough verse. I know it's a weird verse. Uh, but nevertheless, as we're going through in full context, I think that it's still talking about how we relate to people. So it's talking about how we relate to believers in verses one through five, how we relate to unbelievers using wisdom in verse six. Nevertheless, both use wisdom. And then as we get to seven through 12, now we're going to talk about how we relate to God. Now we're going to talk about how we relate to God. So uh, verse seven through 11, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. And when you read that in verse 8, when you see everyone, you should make sure you, you underline that. If It's not bad. You can write in your Bible. Everyone who asks, receives. And then it says, verse 9, For which one of you, if he has a son, and his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if you have a fish, if son asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, if... You human people, when your children, whom you love so much, ask for things. If you know how to give that, consider your heavenly father, who is way better at gift giving than you. What kind of, uh, he says, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So here's the third thing. The gospel of the kingdom produces sons and daughters. We're talking about what it looks like to be someone who's been moved by the gospel and we're living in kingdom life. The gospel of the kingdom produces sons and daughters that pursue God relentlessly. And you could even put a little parenthesis there in prayer. They pursue God in prayer, relentlessly in prayer. Now, here's the key. This is amazing. I don't want you to miss this. Pursuing God relentlessly in prayer. I don't want you to miss what you get. All right. So let's make sure we see that. This is pretty awesome. Uh, when you see this, it says this, uh, verse seven, ask and it will be given. So in this little formula of seeking God in prayer, there's an ask, um, seek and you will find knock and it will be open. So if you ask, you're going to receive, if you seek, you will find it. If you knock, it will be open. Those things are for sure. That if you pursue God relentlessly by asking to do it, he will give to you, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. You will knock, you will open. Now, when you see this, um, it's easy to think that what he's talking about then is, I ask God, I seek for God, I knock for God, need some more stuff, God, and he gives me stuff. Because the relation, what he uses here in his um, little kind of example is uh, how the dad does stuff. And he says, so... Uh, if your son asks for bread, you won't give him a stone. You wouldn't give him a stone. You'd give him bread. Or if it's, you, he asked for fish, you wouldn't give him a snake, right? So in that kind of example, he's saying when the, a son asks or a daughter asks for something to their dad, he gives them that thing they asked for. And then he says this, if you then, who are evil, know how to give goods to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven? And then it says this, watch this, give good things to those who ask. Now, Luke and Luke, I think it's eleven thirteen, doesn't say good things. He says, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Which is, changes it, right? He's saying, ask, receive, knock. And if you ask me, I will give you not stuff. I'll give you me. So this this invitation that we see in verse 7 through 11 is petitioning you to pursue God relentlessly, not for the point of getting stuff, but for the point of getting God. He's saying, 
Come after me. And when you do, I, if you ask for God, you will, you will receive God. Not, not in a salvific way to the non-Christian, but to the Christian. If you want to know Christ more, if you ask, you will receive to know Christ more. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. Not stuff from God, but God. This is an amazing invitation when we see to, re- to relentlessly pursue after God in prayer in order to get God, to get more God, to have the Holy Spirit come to you more, to fill you more, and to push you towards knowing Christ and being more thankful for the gospel. And so this is just an amazing thought here. As he says, ask, receive, knock, because you're being invited into that you will be invited into this amazing relationship. So I just think of my own, my own children, right? How much do I love my children? I love them so much. And I tell them all the time, I love you, I love you. And I, I don't want for them to just love me so that I can give them things. I want them to just like me and love me because of me. I want them to want to hang, I don't want them to hang out with me because I might give them a toy, right? I want them to hang out with me because they enjoy me. I, I've, I've told this often with Tristan is I'll, I'll come up to him, I'll say, Tristan, I love you, buddy. And he'll look at me and go, okay. Yeah, it's like, no, you say I love you too, dad, but he doesn't. But sometimes, right? Sometimes I can catch him at a good point and he'll come up to me and he'll just, in his three-year-old way, he'll say, dad, I like you. I like you and I like mom. And he'll just go through his list of everybody he likes, right? And that's, that's the point, right? The reason why Jesus is using this son and daughter language with the father is to help you see that you shouldn't primarily see your father in heaven as the guy that gives you stuff. Instead, you're, you're a son and daughter who gets to have a relationship with the Father. And he's saying, if you will seek it, knock and ask, then you will get not my stuff. And he will. He'll give you good things. But nevertheless, he'll give you him, the best thing. You'll get to know him. You get to grow in your relationship with him. And so as we're looking at these three cautionary tales or three, three cautionary things about uh, kingdom living, he's advising us on how to deal with Christians He's advising us on how to talk and, and live and share the gospel with non-Christians. But he's also advising us on how to relate to our Heavenly Father as a father. And that we come to him asking to know the Father more. He says he will give us the Holy Spirit. More incredible, he gives us himself. The, the gift of himself. He's, Jesus is not stressing the Father's willingness to give. He's stressing the Father's ability to give. He is able to give you more of himself. Now, here's how I want to conclude. Because as we've thought about uh, all of these things that he's told us to do, I want to make sure that we uh, center them in on the gospel. So in uh, Matthew chapter 5, I want you to see and hear the good news and realize the foundation of everything he says in verses chapter 6 and 7 finds its foundation in this. Now, Uh, As I read the Beatitudes, um, the Beatitudes are kind of the story of a Christian. Uh, It's not so much segmented, lone sentences that you can just kind of read and kind of put on a shelf. And here's another Beatitude and put on a shelf. Instead, they're written in a sequential order intentionally for us to see what it means to become a Christian uh, and what it looks like. So notice this. This is the transition from a non-Christian to confessing sin, to becoming a Christian, to, to... Living as a, as a sharer of the gospel. Watch this. Verse, chapter 5, verse t- 3. Or verse 2, by the way. And he opened his mouth, taught them, saying, and he starts with the gospel. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. So when we see poor in spirit, these are people who are unbelievers. They realize that they are broken in spirit. They are, they are poor in their spirit. They, they are not believers in Christ because they have not yet been converted. They, they're, they're sinners and they realize because they're poor in spirit. They're not yet made rich or whatever, how you want to say it. Blessed are the poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. So when you realize that you're broken, you eventually at some point, if you're a believer, become aware of that and it breaks you. And when that breaks you, you mourn for that fact. You're poor in spirit and you mourn for you're going to be comforted whenever you become a Christian. And it says, blessed are the meek. Not only do you mourn, you realize just how meek you are, just how helpless you are to change the situation. We in of ourselves cannot save ourselves. So we are broken in spirit because we are sinners. We mourn that and we are meek. And whenever we are finally brought to that point where I cannot do anything, there begins to us to something to happen where we can see blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We realize that we have no righteousness with our own, nothing inherent in us, but we need an outward righteousness then to be given to us. And so we hunger for it. We thirst for it. We cry out to God for it. I need this outward righteousness to be given to me because there isn't anything righteous in me, but I need it. And I am unable and incapable of having it and finding and getting it in myself. So I hunger and thirst for this alien righteousness to be given to me. And when I find it, I will be satisfied. And you can see this. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. In other words, once I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I confess the fact that I was poor in spirit. I was repent of my sin and I realized that now I've been um, forgiven by God. He's the one who unloads his mercy on me and forgives me in Christ. And now I have the capacity, once I have been shown mercy, to become a merciful person. Blessed are the mercy for they shall receive mercy. And here's what happens when he shows me mercy. He declares me, boom, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. This is the declaration that you are now completely righteous in Christ. You were broken. You were a sinner. You cried out to God. You hungered and thirsted for righteousness. You couldn't provide it of yourself. He gave it to you in Christ. And now he declares you pure in heart. Nothing you could do besides repent of your sin. And what does he do? He calls you righteous, holy, blameless, pure. And now that you have become pure in heart and you know that you will see God, what do you do? This is what you do. You live a life now becoming a peacemaker. This doesn't mean primarily that you're going to your brother and your sister and you're saying, hey, y'all should get along. You do that. But ultimately, this peacemaker here is that you stand as an ambassador between God and God and man, 2 Corinthians 5, and you say, you can be back, you can know God if you trust Christ. So you're a peacemaker between God and man, bringing ultimate peace to them because you share the gospel with them. And so you become a peacemaker. You become someone who as we saw in verse 6, who shares the gospel with people, as many people as you can. And what happens when, that, when we do that? What happens invariably to the Christians when they share the gospel? People don't like it. And so, blessed are those are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's what happens, though. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When people don't like it, you will be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. They'll persecute you as well. So I think that when we see the Beatitudes, we see this is the whole of the Christian life. That we were broken. That we mourned for our sin. We were meek, incapable of saving ourselves. We hungered for righteousness. God showed us mercy. He declared us now pure in heart. And he set it on a path of being a peacemaker. Sometimes, even in America, we might be persecuted, but we might not. But nevertheless, all of the stuff that follows after the Beatitudes, which we've seen, 
all finds its foundation in the gospel. And once we see that, then we can talk about how it means to relate to others. We can see that I should be the kind of person that wants to not be a judgmental hypocrite because I was poor in spirit, but instead repents of my own sin, confesses the two by four, and goes to other people in love and care and gentleness of spirit and wants them to repent of their sin, to see what, that Christ wants them to be holy. And I want to share the gospel. I want to be a peacemaker. And I might be persecuted, but nevertheless, I'm going to do it anyway. And as I do that, I want to relentlessly pursue the Father and know the Father, not for the sake of getting stuff from the Father, but for the sake of getting God. And it all finds its foundation in the gospel. So as we look at this coffee cup verse, Matthew 7, 1, uh, you know, a, a verse taken out of the context. When I started the sermon, I said, God, help, don't just help us pray that we understand this verse, which is good. We should understand verses, right? But I prayed, God, help us love Christ more as we see your text. I'm hoping that God has done this for you, that you've seen and understand what Christ has done for you in the good news of the gospel by dying on the cross for your sin, forgiving of your sin when you've repented of your sin, and then raising to life, therefore demonstrating you had ultimate power to forgive your sin and you can be raised to life and that your heart has been filled with love and admiration and affection for Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that ultimately every verse in the Bible <clears throat> is about you and what you've done. Sure, God, you, you tell us how we should live and you want us to live holy lives and you tell us there's things we can do and things we cannot do and how we can relate to others. But ultimately, all that is because of Jesus. And so, I pray for us all that we would <coughs> live out this kingdom life, not in our own power, but instead on your power. Not just because we feel like we need to obey rules and do the things you say, but instead because of what you've done for us. And now we want to live a life of worship, obeying the things that you said. Obeying them because we get to, not because we have to. So Lord, I pray that if there's people around us that uh, need to understand your forgiveness, that you would enable us, Father, to love them, go to them uh, that are believers with gentleness. That we would, of course, examine our own hearts first. Repent of all of sin that's going on and then go to them and love them well. See them restored. Encourage them and build them up, not tear them down. And there's people around you that don't know you that we would share the gospel with them as much as possible and give, give us discernment to know what that looks like. But more than anything, God, as this text ended, that we would see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of pursuing knowing you that you've actually given us this incredible gift as your sons and daughters, <laughs> that we can know our Father. What a privilege it is to be your child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.